Welcome to the Healthcare Executive Podcast, providing you with insightful commentary and developments in the world of healthcare leadership. To learn more, visit ACHE.org. I'm your host, Caitlin White. In this podcast episode, we are joined by Dr. Abraham Verghese, the professor and vice chair of theory and practice of medicine at the Stanford University School of Medicine. You may also know him from his book, The Covenant of Water, which has appeared on numerous best of lists. Dr. Verghese will be presenting the Ginsig Commemorative Lecture and Luncheon, The Caring in Healthcare, Challenges and Opportunities in a Technological Era, at the 2024 Congress on Healthcare Leadership. That's March 25th through 28th in Chicago. Well, first off, thank you so much for being here today, Doctor. It's great to have you on the show. My pleasure. So to kick us off today, please tell us about the early years in your career journey and your path towards practicing medicine. How did you get here to where you are today? Well, it's been a long sort of tortuous path. I began medical school actually in the country where I was born, which is Ethiopia. And then halfway through my clinical years, I was interrupted by a civil war. And I came to join my parents who had left the country earlier. And I was sort of stuck because I didn't have an undergraduate degree, which is true in most parts of the world. You go straight from, you know, high school to pre-med to med school. So I worked for a year and a half as a nursing assistant or orderly. And I look back now and I find that that was probably the best medical training I ever had <laughs> because it really showed me what happens to the patient in the 23 hours and 55 minutes that, you know, the doctors are not in the room. I subsequently finished in India in medicine, joining in the third year of a five-year program, and then came to America, trained in internal medicine, infectious disease. And I've had a succession of faculty positions in Boston, Tennessee, Iowa, San Antonio, El Paso, and finally, the last 15 years uh, here at Stanford. Wonderful. Well, thanks for giving us a bit about your background. You know, my next question is more about empathy. Empathy is needed in healthcare now more than ever, and among healthcare workers, not just clinicians. So why is empathy so important in healthcare, and how can our leaders foster it within themselves and among their teams? You know, I think we have to keep reminding ourselves that medicine is, is very much a human endeavor. So the person who feels ill, who has a serious symptom, or a serious illness, you know, this is not about quality measures or any of the things that we tend to get caught up in. It's about how they're feeling and their perhaps most important need is to feel that someone and the system cares for them in a personal way, not as a number, not as a statistic. But I think what happens to many of us in healthcare is that over time, as we sort of fall into the busyness and routineness of our work, we can easily forget this aspect of how for the patient it's, you know, it's ground zero for them. They're starting for the first time with this illness experience, which is very isolating. And they require something more of us than, you know, technically dealing with their disease. I don't think that, you know, we need to teach empathy. Uh, my thesis is that medical students come to medicine with a tremendous amount of empathy for their fellow human beings and, you know, all the right motives. I think what happens is as they are forced to sort of drink from this big fire hose of information, they very gradually become more and more disease-oriented as opposed to, you know, sort of people-oriented the way they might have been. 
the good news is that most of us come back to some original version of ourselves, but you know, that transition can be long and it doesn't happen for everyone. So I think it's less a matter of teaching empathy than it is constantly reminding ourselves, especially in the present environment of, you know, healthcare mergers and huge medical industrial complexes where both physicians and patients can feel like widgets in a, in a bigger system. It's terribly important to try somehow to convey one's understanding of the personal nature of the illness to the patient. Mm, I love that sentiment. Thank you so much, doctor, for sharing. Now, advances in technology and telemedicine, as well as the use of artificial intelligence in healthcare, can really change the way clinicians interact with their patients. So how can healthcare providers balance the benefits of these tools with the potential pitfalls? Telemedicine is interesting because, you know, you would have thought that someone like me with all my interests in bedside medicine and, you know, the personal encounter with the patient would be, would have been very skeptical. And I was, <laughs> right. but I was actually pleasantly surprised during COVID, both as a provider and also as a, you know, as a consumer to find uh, that the interaction could be quite meaningful. In fact, you know, looking over the shoulders of some of my primary care colleagues, we were seeing patients who were, you know, doing the telemedicine call from their car because they didn't have Wi-Fi and they were parked outside a hotel or somewhere. Or we were, for the first time, understanding the, you know, the, the limitations of the, the environment the patient was in or the richness of it, seeing a pet that was, you know, as beloved as any family member or seeing <laughs> many family members around or perhaps appreciating the starkness of their environment. And you know, we give a lot of lip service in medicine to social aspects of medicine, to the you know, non-quantifiable other that happens in the home and the family support. And, you know, but we don't really, for all our lip service, we don't really get to see it. And to me, telemedicine was a revelation, the first opportunity to sort of see the patient surrounded by the very things that you know, are important to them, that make them who they are as opposed to when you make them come to the clinic or the hospital and they park and eventually they're in an exam room, often in an examining gown, completely stripped of all those attributes that make them so unique. Uh, it was really humbling, telemedicine was, to, to sort of get that sense of the patient. And I think a hybrid of telemedicine and in-person visits is the way to go. AI is much more complicated, as you know, you know, we're still sort of getting our head wrapped around what the benefits might be, and we're very well aware of the dangers. To my mind, you know, there's nothing either artificial or intelligent in a sense <laughs> about AI, by which I mean, you know, it, it, it is basing its work, so to speak, on our existing work, on all our existing data. And the intelligence is, you know, very much a algorithm-driven admittedly a very sophisticated algorithm capable of you know learning through this is sort of neural neural networks nevertheless it is based very much on what we provided and i was sort of faced with this most starkly when i was experimenting with chat gpt and i asked it to write something in the manner of abraham verghese myself and you know what came out was a a parody of my work not entirely inaccurate but I immediately recognized that this would not have been possible without it 
in a sense, parasitizing my work. <laughs> so I think, you know, we have to get over the sense of it being some godlike being that owes its existence to its own individuality. Far from it. It's very, very much a function of our existing knowledge. But that said, it's clearly capable of things that are just incredible. For example, analyzing thousands and thousands or millions of EKGs and X-rays, it is able to discern things that we didn't think were possible when you looked at an EKG. And sometimes it's not even able to explain to you how it does it, but it does. You know, I think which is the incredible sort of learning part of this program. My own hope is that AI will improve our interpretation of imaging, for example, both radiologic and uh, histologic imaging, but always with a, a check piece of someone looking over his shoulder. But I think for most, most of us in practice, the most important asset will really be if it can take away some of the, you know, the grunt work, some of the busy work. Uh, as it turns out, most of us spend much more time on the computer than on patient care. Mm. And most of that is spent documenting for purposes of billing. It's a, it's a paradox. We are the highest paid clerical workers in the country. <laughs> That's not an efficient use of our time. It's responsible for a tremendous amount of burnout. And in contrast to AI, the electronic medical record, as we know it, is really uh, a mistake of epic proportions from the point of view of the physician and the nurses and the consumers, from the point of view of the people who you know, who find it most useful, which is the, the C-suite, it does a marvelous job, I'm sure, of keeping track of all the operations and, you know, making sure that billing is maximized. But to the individual consumer, it is really not a friendly machine. And I'm hoping that AI can take over some of the rote functions of progress notes and all those sorts of things, you know, billing and coding. It might actually do a more honest job of it than, than we do, because I think there's a lot of moral injury that we're committing ourselves by inflating our notes and, you know, ticking off boxes to claim that we did things on the physical exam that we clearly never did. So it's going to be an interesting period to watch. Uh, the great difficulty, however, is that because we don't have standardized platforms in medicine, you know, I, I don't have any guarantee of being able to read a record from another institution, it's very hard to see how AI will bring about an evenness in quite the same way that you have, for example, in, in banking. You know, you can mm. take your ATM card, go anywhere in the world and get cash. You cannot, at this point, take your medical record on a, on a computer chip and have it be understood or shared with any other system. There are lots of limitations. Oh, I agree. We are just so, so early in understanding just how deeply AI will affect our world from here on out. I'd love to pivot now to the fact that you took a break from medicine, actually, and earned your master's degree from the Iowa Writers Workshop. So how did you become interested in writing and how has writing influenced the way you practice medicine? You know, I never had an ambition to be a writer. It's really interesting to look back and see how that happened. My, my first burning passion was always medicine, but I came to medicine because of a book. I think like many of my generation and before, it was often a book, a novel that called us to medicine. In America, that book was often Arrowsmith by Sinclair Lewis in, in the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth. It was The Citadel by A.J. Cronin. So, you know, a, a book like that made me 
see medicine as a romantic and passionate pursuit. And I've never lost that sense. But the reason I became a writer is after I trained in infectious diseases, I um, went back to Tennessee to a small town, new medical school, Johnson City, population 50 to 100,000. And all the pundits told me that in 1985, I should expect to see no HIV or maybe one patient every other year because HIV was very much an urban disease. And, you know, I had seen a ton of it in Boston, but I wasn't expected to see it in Tennessee. Instead of which, in a very short time, I thought I had accumulated almost 100 people with HIV infection, which is a staggering number for that population, a hundredfold more than anyone might have predicted. And, you know, it became clear to me fairly early on that this wasn't the case of infection spreading locally, far from it. I felt I had stumbled onto a very American story of migration, uh, of a young man growing up in a small town and then leaving for the same reasons that you and I leave small towns, jobs, education, opportunity. But in their case, they were also leaving because they were gay and did not want to live that lifestyle under the close scrutiny of their friends and relatives. And so they made their way to the big city, spent decades there, found themselves, lived the way they wanted. But tragically, at some point, the virus found them. And now they were typically coming back because their partners, who they had cared for, had died. And now they were getting ill and there was no one for them. And so they were coming back home. And there I was at the tail end of this migration. And I remember thinking, you know, that this was certainly happening in small towns all across America, not just mine. And I wrote a scientific paper describing the migration, and it became a very often cited paper. And yet, my sense was that the language of science did not begin to capture the, the tragic nature of this voyage, uh, did not begin to capture the heartache of the families, uh, the tragedy of these young men, you know, dying so young. It didn't begin to capture my own grief at living through this again and again. I got very close to these patients because, as you know, we... We cared for them for a long time without any treatments, just watching them decline. And so that was really the moment that I decided to try and tell that story. I'd always heard of Iowa by reputation. It was one of the first universities to offer a PhD or a master's degree where your thesis was a, a novel or a chapbook of poetry. And over the years, has turned out, you know, wonderful writers like Flannery O'Connor, John Irving and Tracy Kidder and, you know, on and on. And so I decided to take a break from medicine and go write about the story. I applied to Iowa. The, the only criteria are two short stories. Nothing really else matters. When they took me, I went. And, you know, I think it was just a wonderful opportunity to have time to develop your voice, to read. The Iowa instruction is actually only once a week. You meet in the class and you two students put up their stories. And when it's your turn, you just keep quiet and you have a sense of people who care deeply about writing, including a visiting writer for the semester, really pour through your work and help you understand that moment when your clumsiness broke the fictional dream or otherwise interrupted, you know, whatever you were trying to create in your reader's mind. So it was a very powerful experience. I um, didn't leave medicine entirely during that period of four semesters. I worked, uh, thankfully, in the HIV clinic in Iowa once a week and that gave me in-state tuition. 
but it was a wonderful period uh, of my life. My gosh, I love that story. Thank you so much for sharing. Well, your best-selling novel, The Covenant of Water, was just published about a year ago in May of 2023. What has the reaction from readers been like for you? Well, it's been extraordinary. I mean, this this book has been a long time coming. I mean, I had a very successful previous novel, Cutting for Stone, and signed with another publisher, took a big advance, but then, you know, had all kinds of setbacks. Uh, you know, I, I'm a slow writer. My day job keeps me pretty busy. But I also think the publisher probably had unrealistic expectations, and I felt that, you know, they didn't really appreciate the story that I wanted to tell, very concerned about the length of it. And so I actually, at great peril, I switched publishers, broke the contract. I still owe them money from the first advance. So for the book to be sort of universally received very well, I mean, it's still on the New York Times bestseller list six months after I published it is extraordinary in hardback. It's, it's been a dream. That's all I can say. It's just been wonderful. I think what echoes with readers, and I think this is the beautiful thing about novels in general, is it's set in a very foreign geography to what most readers know. It's set in the south of India, where my parents are from, in a small Christian community to which I belong, who believe that our Christianity comes from St. Thomas the Apostle, doubting Thomas landing in India. And, you know, you would think that there are not many points of identification, but I think the great thing about novels is what you can all, you always find points of recognition. And in this case, I think it's the very strong sense of family of a very powerful grandmothers who keep everybody going. Uh, readers seem to really, really resonate with that. Well, as we get close to wrapping up here today, Doctor, how do you spend your free time between writing and medicine? What do you do to relax and recharge? <laughs> well, I haven't had a lot of time to relax uh, <laughs> happily because the, uh, the novel's done so well that I've been busy mm -hmm. talking a lot about it. But, you know, I, I love to read. I don't know of any instrument that can stop time quite the way that a novel does. You know, you pick up a novel and in the first couple of pages, if you if they've done their job, you suspend your disbelief and you enter this magical world and you live, you know, centuries and generations and you put the book down and it's only Tuesday. <laughs> I, I love that, that feeling. So I suppose what I do most often to relax is read. I, I also walk while listening to audiobooks. That's become a major way to read books, so to speak, because lots of people are listening. And I had the pleasure of narrating my novel, which was a, which was a fun experience learning to perform it. So yeah, that's what I do. I'm a big audiobook fan as well. So we love to hear that. <laughs> well, you are presenting the Ginzig commemorative lecture, The Caring in Healthcare, Challenges and Opportunities in a Technological Era at Congress this year. Can you give us a sneak preview of your session? What can attendees expect? Well, we're, we're at such an interesting time in medicine. You know, I mean, I can't think of a period where We've had the kinds of technological advances that we're witnessing, you know, amazing cures for cancer with, you know, CAR T cell therapy and so on. And then, of course, AI with all its positives and its potential negatives. So I think, you know, the, the way we started this discussion, I see my role very often as trying to, first of all, rally a flagging morale uh, amongst the physician workforce. You know, it's been really hard for people to be reminded of why they're here, what they're in this for. 
And I think it is important to sort of underline what is timeless in medicine, what is unchanged since antiquity. Uh, and that is our commitment to, to the patient, to the delivery of care. And it can often get lost in this, you know, in this fancy speak around technology and around therapy. We can often lose sight of that. And I think talking to patients, they're not as enthused about scientific breakthroughs and what medicine is accomplishing as we might be. In fact, for the most part, patients are almost as disillusioned or more so than many physicians. So there's a lot of healing to be done. There's a lot of reminding us of what our core values are and finding a way to place technology appropriately in its right perspective as we deliver the best of personalized human care to other human beings. Well, definitely a lot to think about from today's talk, doctor. Thank you so much for being here with us. My pleasure. And I look forward to, to being there and talking to, to the audience. Well, you can learn more from Dr. Verghese at the 2024 Congress on Healthcare Leadership. That's happening March 25th through 28th in Chicago. To learn more and to register, visit ACHE.org slash Congress. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it on your social channels. And please consider rating and reviewing our show. Thank you for listening.